Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 1.20, The Great Migration. Last time, we spent our time talking about how our friends back in the Plymouth Colony basically sat around making everybody hate their guts. Yet, despite the fact that the outsiders couldn't stand them, Plymouth is functioning relatively well and doesn't really seem to care much that the outsiders don't like them. This week, we are going to step back from Plymouth and turn to an event that is about to rock New England and forever change that region. I'm talking specifically about the Great Migration. So, for now, we are going to set Bradford, Standish, and our pilgrims in Plymouth aside to yell at everybody else to get off their lawn. As for us, we are going to spend this week looking at the Great Migration. We are going to examine the event that caused approximately 80,000 English people to decide that the time was right to pack up and get out of town as quickly as possible. We are going to look at those who decided to leave, who they were, the conditions that they left under, and finally, where did they end up going? We are going to then turn our attention back to North America to look at the new colonies that began to pop up all over the place, though this will come in the next episode. This is all going to be most pronounced by the establishment of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And throughout this week and the episodes to come, we are going to see the Massachusetts Bay Colony emerge as the dominant colony in the New England region. At the same time, we are going to begin to see the emergence of a handful of colonists who are going to truly start to shape the American political experience. Now, before we jump in, I do want to make a really quick note about the nomenclature here. If you're thinking right now, hey, I thought the Great Migration was something different, well, you are probably correct. Nice work. As it turns out, a term like the Great Migration is just too good to use only once. There is a much better known Great Migration, which takes place during the early 20th century and deals with African Americans relocating from the rural south to the more urban north and west. It is something that I'm sure we are going to talk about in detail when we eventually reach that point. So what we are dealing with today is the first Great Migration that will appear in our story. Okay, with that note out of the way, let's jump on in and begin figuring out what the whole Great Migration is all about. To understand the Great Migration of the Puritans, we are going to need to head back to England and take some time looking at the political events that have been taking place back on the home island. English politics throughout the first quarter of the 1600s was a changing dynamic. Chief amongst these changes was the ever-evolving religious landscape of England. It has occurred to me that we've not really spent a whole lot of time in England since we left Elizabeth behind. So I'm going to take just a minute here to cover some of the key events leading towards the Great Migration that occurred during the reign of James I, and then we are going to settle in and spend the majority of our time on the policies of Charles I. For anybody who finds the topics today to be absolutely fascinating, I'm going to strongly encourage you guys who are interested in the subject to dive into the English Civil War. I think you'd really enjoy it, and a lot of the things we talk about today are going to be the events that led to that conflict. So many of our topics and causes for the Great Migration will eventually become the chief causes of the civil wars that are going to rock England during the 1640s. It really is a fascinating subject. However, it is something that is going to fall mostly outside the scope of our story. I will give you a spoiler, however, none of this is going to end well for King Charles I. I think it is also worth pointing out that the events we are going to be talking about today are not going to just result in a mass migration to New England. Of the approximately 80,000 people who relocate, New England serves as only one possible destination. In the future United States alone, it is worth noticing that during the 1630s we also see an increase in the population around Virginia and throughout the other new colonies in the Chesapeake region. 
this is not an unrelated event, and sure enough, the population increase being realized in the Chesapeake colonies is also due to the Great Migration. Other places as well, such as Ireland and Barbados, are also going to see substantial increases in their population during this period as a result. Massachusetts is so often seen as a focal point simply because those migrating did tend to be Puritans and New England became well known as a Puritan haven. The popular version of Plymouth, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and all of New England is that it is founded by people solely focused on fleeing the tyranny and religious persecution back in England. And in all fairness, that's not completely inaccurate. Religion was a huge factor in what drove people across the Atlantic. However, it would be a mistake to dismiss other factors that are going on during the same time. Beginning under King James I, the southeastern part of England was hit with a particularly devastating depression. Throughout southern England, it was the cloth industry that had taken hold and flourished. This is something that begins during the 16th century and had grown to become one of the most important industries in that region. However, during the reign of James I, the entire textile industry entered into a period of steep decline. I'm not going to plunge into the causes of this depression in any real depth, because really the only thing you need to know is that the industry was declining. But the government did what they could to keep businesses stimulated. They sent out letters encouraging people to keep cloth makers employed and trying to encourage merchants to buy more cloth. However, despite these government efforts, the wool industry was collapsing and showed absolutely no signs of getting better quickly. Towns that had become hubs of industry in the 16th century were plunging deeper into depression during the 17th. Some of these towns included places like Boston, located in Lincolnshire. And I bet none of you can guess what the people moving to New England from Boston are going to choose to name their new town. As the Depression gets worse during this period, England also unfortunately entered into a period where, for three straight years, crops are going to fail. From 1630 until 1633, England suffered through devastating crop failures and poor harvests. This leads to a lack of grain and food supplies. Inevitably, the lack of grain means that prices are going to begin to soar at a time when everybody is struggling with the collapse of the textile industry. So what you have emerged during the early 1630s was high unemployment combined with rapidly rising food costs. I don't want to set up a situation where you're thinking that economics were the reason for mass migration from England. Religion, which we are going to talk extensively about here in just a minute, was an absolute huge factor in this. It is absolutely the primary factor. However, the economic conditions in the region, which was, oh, by the way, made up predominantly of Puritans, is something that always needs to be taken into account. Sure, there are other motivations which are going to be far more front and center, but the economy is always a factor in just about everything. While there is no direct evidence either way that people were packing up and leaving England because of a collapsing textile industry and rising food costs, it must be at least considered as a potential cause and motivating factor. When these guys are debating whether or not they want to migrate, it's not like the local economy is doing anything to help convince people that sticking around is a good idea. Economic matters aside, of course the elephant in the room, as it rightly deserves to be, is going to be the matter of religion. Throughout the reign of James I, England had slowly but surely been moving in a decidedly Puritan direction. James I, for his part, had seen the growing influence of the Puritans in the Church of England, but had always fallen in line with the status quo, which was basically to brush the Puritans aside. This came much to the chagrin of those same Puritans. If the Puritans were in an increasing annoyance for James, they would be nothing short of an utter catastrophe for Charles I, and would completely color just about everything to do with his reign. 
By the time that Charles I takes the throne, the Puritans had become a serious player in English politics, and they had become a major party within the House of Commons. With the Puritans so quickly becoming one of the most powerful factions inside of Parliament, they were able to begin to ratchet up political pressure for the changes that they felt necessary. And surprise, surprise, many of these changes are going to revolve around the church. Now, you might be saying to yourself right now that, hey, I thought England was a monarchy. Who cares about what Parliament wants? In many ways, that's not an incorrect assessment. England did have a powerful central monarchy. However, the King of England was not completely absolute in his power. Parliament's primary function, and the one that the king held so dear, was that they were the only party in the nation that could raise taxes. That meant that the king could do whatever he wants. However, if he wanted money to pay for it, Parliament was going to have to get on board. This was the primary method used by Parliament to place a check upon the king's power. In essence, this means that the members of Parliament could hold funds hostage as a means of getting the king to enact the policies that they wanted. Charles I did have a few things he could do to raise money. However, these were all pretty limited in their effect, at least at this point. This is actually going to become a major point of contention during the 1630s when Charles decides that he has had enough of Parliament and disbands them. During the decade without Parliament, England is obviously going to still require money to remain open for business. Charles I is going to get creative with his fundraising efforts during that decade, which will, of course, be another step towards the looming civil war that everybody is unknowingly sprinting towards at this point. But again, let's not go spiraling down that rabbit hole. Moving back to our story, if you recall, we had talked a few episodes ago about the perceived need amongst the Puritans to reform the church. Some had wanted to see the church reformed from within, while other factions believed that it was so hopelessly corrupt that literally nothing could save it. To this point, King James had rebuffed most of the Puritan requests. However, by the 1620s, the Puritans were growing into a major political faction. If conditions for the Puritans under James I had been difficult, the conditions under the reign of Charles I are going to be downright unbearable. In fact, basically every step that Charles is going to take in regards to the religious matters of the nation are going to do nothing but aggravate the situation. Charles I became the new King of England in 1625 following the death of his father. Towards the end of the reign of James I, problems had emerged between the King and Parliament. With tensions already high between the highly Puritan members of Parliament and the now King Charles, the problem soon turned to the issue of religion. Feelings had long been in place that Charles was soft on Catholics at best, and at worst was himself a closeted Catholic. Charles here does an excellent job of proving the Puritans justified in their fears. Seriously, every move the guy is going to make in the coming years is going to basically support the idea that Charles was in fact planning to reintroduce Catholicism into England. To begin with, let's take a look at exactly what was making the Puritans in England so nervous heading into the 1620s. For that answer, it is going to be necessary to cast our gaze past England and into mainland Europe where in 1618 the Thirty Years' War broke out. We talked a little bit about this war back in episode 1.4 when discussing the Reformation, and I had said that I didn't really want to get into the intricate details of an otherwise super complicated war. And here I stand 16 episodes later and I still really don't want to get into the details of a super complicated war. Suffice it to say, however, that the Thirty Years' War was primarily a battle over the status of the Reformation in Europe. The war basically breaks down into a fight between the Protestant powers and the Catholic powers. What will eventually emerge is a conflict that looks very much like a war between the Habsburgs and basically everybody else. The ties of the war, however, are not terribly important for this episode. What is important, however, is that for the Puritans in England during the 1620s and 30s, it would be impossible not to cast your gaze across the channel at the mess taking place on the mainland. 
From the perspective of those Puritans, this sure looked like a giant conflict whereby the Catholics were doing all they could to snuff out the light of Protestantism and restore a Europe that was unified under a single Catholic church. As the Puritans in England watched the Catholic forces do their best to eliminate their mainland Protestant brethren, you can't really blame them for turning to their king and hoping for a strong and decisive response. Remember a few minutes ago, I mentioned that Charles is basically going to do everything in his power, however, to convince the Puritans that he was a closeted Catholic? Those feelings are going to be born largely with the Thirty Years' War providing a nice backdrop. The first misstep really wasn't Charles at all, but was instead his father, James. James I had been interested for a while in forming an alliance with the Spanish, and did what he could to secure a marriage between Charles and Maria Anna. Anna was the daughter of King Philip III of Spain, thus making her grandfather King Philip II, who we spent so much time discussing back during our episode on the Spanish Armada. However, as should surprise nobody who has been paying any attention, this match was really, really, really unpopular back in England. Nobody aside from James I was really interested in seeing a future king marry a devout Catholic. The negotiations began in earnest for the marriage sometime around 1614 and lasted until right around 1623 when the idea ultimately fell flat. In what would become known as the Spanish Match, this became nothing short of a scandal in England and Scotland. What would have probably been an unpopular marriage to begin with in 1614 became downright despised by the time 1623 rolled around because, remember, in 1618, the Thirty Years' War had broken out on the continent, a war which, in theory at least, the English were supporting the Protestant forces fighting against the Spanish Habsburgs. Absolutely nobody missed the fact that England, a nation that was supposedly already a major Protestant power, was growing more and more Calvinist by the day. Now, however, James I was suddenly looking at marrying the, then future king, to the daughter of the guy trying to eliminate the Protestants in Europe? The increasingly Puritan House of Commons did not want a marriage with the Spanish crown. They wanted to join the fight and declare war against Spain. One must wonder what would have happened if James I decided in 1618 to drop the whole idea of the marriage. But he decided that the best course was to march forward. But hey, let's step back for a minute. Why the hate towards Charles I? I mean, this is his dad's dumb idea. It isn't like he's setting up his own marriage, right? Well, as correct as that would be, we are now in 1623, and it's time for the first misstep by then Prince Charles. It's right here that Charles decides he's going to take things into his own hands. So Charles hops on a boat, heads down to Spain, and makes an attempt to win Maria Anna's hand in marriage. Oh, and by the way, literally nobody knew Charles was going to do this. He traveled along with the Duke of Buckingham under fake names and just surprised everybody when he showed up in Spain. The problem is that Maria Anna really didn't want to marry Charles because, you know, he wasn't Catholic, at least not officially. And in fact, she got her way. The marriage never does happen and Charles would go back to England empty-handed. Upon his return to England, Charles basically made a 180-degree turn and suddenly supported war against the Spanish, likely to nurse his bruised ego. This, however, is going to remain contrary to James I's position, and despite a loud call of war throughout Parliament, James refuses to sign the Declaration of War. This entire debacle is going to cause a huge rift between the monarchy and the Parliament. Because while Charles does come back beating the drum of war, he does a pretty great job of alienating Parliament in the process. For Charles, there is also the inescapable truth that he actually was in favor of the marriage to Maria Anna. 
when he suddenly starts campaigning for war, it's not like he is doing so because of his deep opposition to the Spanish. He is doing it because he was spurned in Spain and now is looking for a way to save face. However, with the marriage to Maria Anna out, Charles I still needed to get married. Of course, after seeing the complete scandal that the Spanish match became, Charles intelligently decided to marry a Protestant to quell some of those annoying rumors about him. Just kidding. Instead, Charles makes the decision to marry the French Catholic Henrietta Maria in 1625. This marriage was just as popular as you would imagine, and those rumors and murmurings about Charles being a closeted Catholic are getting pretty hard to deny at this point. Henrietta Maria would remain an unpopular queen for the remainder of her life, and never did anything in the slightest to even attempt to hide her Catholic beliefs. For Henrietta Maria, she was a Catholic, and that was that. Charles, likewise, did spend considerable time and effort early in his reign to try to get control over the growing Puritan problem in the House of Commons. One such measure was naming Richard Montague as the royal chaplain. Montague was himself a member of the group known as the Arminians, a group that was devoutly anti-Calvinist in their beliefs. This, of course, did absolutely nothing whatsoever to make the Puritans feel any safer or more secure. Over on the war front, things really weren't going any better. The mainland remained stuck in war, and the English decided to basically keep out of that. They did fight a limited naval war with the Spanish over in the New World. Even then, however, Parliament underfunded the entire expedition and things went badly. The expedition was led by the Duke of Buckingham, the guy who went to Spain along with Charles to woo Maria Anna, and he was also Charles' closest friend. Basically, nothing in that battle went well. Upon returning, Charles attempted to promote Buckingham, while basically the entire House of Commons was clamoring for his removal. Charles, instead of giving in and dismissing his buddy, decided to go ahead and ditch Parliament instead and order them to disband. Buckingham, for his troubles, would be assassinated in 1628, and the war against Spain would just kind of peter out. It is worth noting that the death of Buckingham is something that Charles I would never fully get over, and would always hold a grudge against Parliament for their treatment of his closest friend. So now, as we stand here in the late 1620s, the situation looks like this. The mainland continued to be marred in a war between the Protestant and Catholic forces. The monarchy did little to convince anybody that they weren't friendly to the Catholics. Following a failed attempt to marry Charles to the Habsburg princess Maria Anna, Charles married the very Catholic Henrietta Maria of France. Charles, in what was a pretty apparent attempt to limit Puritan influence in Parliament, decided to go ahead and give support to the anti-Calvinist Armenians. For the Puritans, this is all highly disturbing. Things would, however, reach a fever pitch in 1629, when Charles would enter into what is known as the period of personal rule. Without going into all of the reasons why, Charles I and members of Parliament reached a breaking point over a tax that Charles attempted to implement himself. This was a violation of the recently passed but long-accepted Petition of Right, which prohibits the king from assessing taxes. That job belongs to the Parliament. Charles, furious that Parliament would not give him the funding he needed, decided that Parliament needed to take a break and ordered them to adjourn. Adjourning Parliament fell to the Speaker of the House, Sir John Finch. The rest of Parliament, however, decided that they were in fact not ready to go home. Several members ended up physically holding Finch down in his chair to prevent him from adjourning the session, while other members read out angry statements against several different subjects, including for our story Armenianism and Catholicism. 
Charles was obviously furious over this disbanded parliament and would order several members of the House of Commons to be arrested. At this point, Charles I decides he's going to go at it alone. Charles isn't going to call another parliament for 11 years. Remember a little while ago, we talked about how the Puritans become a major player in the House of Commons? No doubt, the action undertaken by Charles in 1629 must have felt like a personal attack against them. Take note that while Sir John Finch was being held down, religion was one of the chief topics being railed against, no doubt led by the Puritans in the House of Commons. With all of this going on and tensions already at a boiling point, a new member of the story is going to enter into the equation. Welcome to the game, William Laud. To claim that William Laud is new to the story really isn't true. He's been in the background since the mid-1620s. However, it is during the 1630s that he is really going to get the chance to make a name for himself. So, who is William Laud? William Laud was born on October 7th, 1573, the son of minor merchants. Laud had enough means growing up that he was well-educated. Choosing a career in the church, Laud became a deacon in 1601 and a priest in the Anglican church just a few months later. Laud managed to become a close confidant of the Duke of Buckingham, which is how he got access to the king. Charles took a liking to Laud and announced that upon the eventual death of the Archbishop of Canterbury, the position was going to belong to Laud. In the meantime, he was named to the position of Bishop of London. Laud's main focus during his time in power was making sure that the Church of England followed a single, unified policy. Laud was determined to see the Church return to a more strict observance of its original form. Laud was staunchly opposed to the growing Puritan influence and wanted nothing more than to purge their influence from the Church entirely. During the era of Charles I's personal rule, Laud is going to become a major driver of religious affairs inside of England. The dissenting Puritan voices in Parliament were, for the moment, silenced, and Laud worked diligently to make sure that their voices were not part of the church. Laud, himself a strict anti-Calvinist, took an aggressive stance and ordered and denounced Calvinism at every opportunity. At the urging of Laud, Charles I was more than willing to pass regulations to help move the church back in more of a uniform direction. And while Laud did begin to see a slow movement towards conformity, he wanted this to move a little bit quicker. Laud had no time for slow movement. Laud proposed taking things in a more dramatic direction, something that Charles didn't object to. During the personal rule of Charles, therefore, Laud moves from preaching anti-Calvinist sentiments to just arresting those priests who failed to properly conform to church orthodoxy. Throughout the 1630s, the Tower of London became a popular landing spot for those dissenting priests, most of whom were Puritans. This is going to remain a common theme throughout the 1630s, as Laud would continue in his quest to purge the dissenters from the church. It shouldn't come as much of a surprise, therefore, that the Puritans viewed Laud's actions as nothing short of persecution. Laud's actions are often pointed to as being one of the single most important driving forces when it came to explaining the Great Migration. And in fact, there is absolutely some truth to this. However, I would suggest that instead of simply looking at Laud as the explanation, he instead should be viewed as just another brick in the wall that explains why the Puritans decided that the 1630s was a good time to get out of Dodge. There were a lot of factors at work. Charles had time and time again, through his actions, given the Puritans no reason to believe that he wasn't actually preparing to return England to Catholicism. As a quick note, if you're wondering what happened to Laud, eventually Parliament is going to be called in 1640, and then Archbishop of Canterbury, William Laud, will be accused of and arrested for treason. He is going to be thrown into the Tower of London, where he hangs out while awaiting his trial. 
At that trial, no verdict was reached, much to the annoyance of Parliament. With the trial path a failure, Parliament instead decided to seek a bill of attainder, which they got and went ahead and beheaded William Laud in January of 1645. Laud had actually been pardoned by Charles I, however by this point nobody really cared what King Charles had to say, especially Parliament. As for the question of what is a bill of attainder, it is an act where a legislature can just go ahead and vote somebody guilty of a crime without pesky things like trial or anything resembling due process. We are going to end up talking about these a little bit more down the road. Through his marriage and appointments to the high church with men like Montague and Laud, what else could the Puritans possibly think? And while it appears that Charles might have regretted giving Laud so much power later in his life, the damage was already done. For the Puritans in England, the 1620s and 30s must have been an absolutely terrifying time for them. On the mainland, the Thirty Years' War continued to be waged. Their king appeared to be a Catholic sympathizer. His appointments to the church were loudly opposed to their beliefs and eventually started locking up their leaders in the Tower of London. Not to mention the attacks that Charles had launched against Parliament and the period of self-rule. With the growing influence of Puritans in the House of Commons, it must have felt like a very personal attack against them specifically, to which they are not incorrect, it was an attack against them specifically. Plus, don't forget this, we know how the story ends. The Puritans in 1630 don't. They have no idea how far Laud is going to go. Is he going to eventually just start executing those who don't conform? I mean, arrests are already going down, purges are the next thing on the persecution checklist, right? Are the Puritans going to have to choose between their lives and their immortal souls? All of this goes directly to the reasons why the Great Migration happened and to whom was migrating. With danger and persecution increasing all around them, the best bet for the Puritans in England was to get out while they still were able to get out. And get out, they did. Over the course of the decade, some 80,000 people are going to leave England, with between 20 and 24,000 ending up in New England. To wrap up today, I want to take a moment to clarify the difference between the pilgrims and the Puritans that come over during the Great Migration. All too often, these groups are talked about interchangeably. However, there are a few differences that should be noted. I know we covered this once before, but I had a few questions come in on it, and I wanted to make sure that we're all on the same page. So to begin, everybody here is a follower of John Calvin. The difference is not necessarily in core beliefs, but rather is in a question regarding the relationship with the Church of England. The Puritans are the name of the greater religious movement. So yes, those who landed in Plymouth were Puritans. The core difference between the groups is what they had hoped to accomplish. If you recall, the Pilgrims were part of the Brownist faction, otherwise known as the Separatists. The Pilgrims looked at the Church of England, decided that it wasn't meeting their expectations for being holy enough, and that nothing in the world was going to change that. Their decision, then, was to fully separate from the Church because that is the only way that they could get closer to God. This is what we talked about when we introduced the Pilgrims the first time. They wanted small, very simple services with absolutely no hierarchy. Those who easy arriving during the Great Migration are largely that other group of Puritans, though more Brownists did make the trek over. While they had many of the same core beliefs as the Pilgrims, they did not just want to give up on the Church of England. Instead, what this group wanted was to reform the Church from within. They wanted to purge the relics of Catholicism from the Church and make the entire structure something more pure. This included things like eliminating wedding rings and even the sign of the cross, as those were both nothing more than idols in their eyes. So, to sum this entire thing up, 
Both the Pilgrims of 1620 and the Puritans of the Great Migration agree on a ton in regards to religion. The disagreement was not something locked up in a fierce dogmatic fight, rather it was a question of scope. They essentially agreed on the problem. They agreed what needed to happen, but they disagreed on the path towards those changes. One group wanted to break away entirely, while the other group wanted to reform the entire structure from within. Everybody wanted to purge all the remaining Roman influence from their worship, they just disagreed on how to go about it. Hopefully that makes this distinction a bit easier to understand. With that, we are going to go ahead and leave the story here for right now. Next time, we are going to continue looking at the Great Migration. However, we are going to jump on to the other side of the Atlantic. The Massachusetts Bay Colony is one of the primary landing sites of those trying to escape persecution in England. This is going to have major and permanent repercussions for the entire area. With that, I will see you back here in two weeks' time to jump across the Atlantic and begin looking at the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. I hope you all have an excellent two weeks, and I will see you back here then. 